If you would open the scriptures with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. This is Luke's sequel to the gospel according to Luke, and now it tells the story of Christ's work from heaven as he publishes his gospel, sends forth the preaching through the apostles, especially it relates to us in the preaching of the Apostle Paul. We're looking tonight at how God sovereignly determines where the gospel goes, both in Old Testament and in New Testament, and there's a quite a marvelous illustration of that in our passage tonight. I'd like to read the first 15 verses of Acts 16, the first 15 verses, beginning at verse 1, giving our attention to the Word of God. Then he, the Apostle Paul, uh, I should say too, he's on his second missionary journey here. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized... She begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And then what follows in Philippi is the conversion of the Philippian jailer. I invite you to turn in the Forms and Prayers book at this time to the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort, page 272 in the small Forms and Prayers book, page 272. And there we're in the um, third head of doctrine, the third and fourth head of doctrine, dealing with um, human corruption and the conversion of God to it. So um, total depravity and irresistible grace, as we call them. 
And so um, we, we've seen that man is totally unable to seek the Lord of himself. He's dead in sin. He can't come. And then we've confessed in Article 4 that, that the light of nature, the revelation of creation, is not enough to bring anyone to the Lord. And then we confessed in Article 5 that the law is not enough. Just knowing the commandments, that can't bring you to God. But Article 6 says, What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God accomplishes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word or the ministry of reconciliation. This is the gospel about the Messiah through which it has pleased God to save believers in both the Old and New Testament. We saw that last time. But now that gospel that alone brings salvation is published according to God's sovereign will. Article 7, here's our focus tonight, God's freedom in revealing the gospel. In the Old Testament, God revealed the secret of his will to a small number. In the New Testament, now without any distinction between peoples, he discloses it to a large number. The reason for this difference must not be ascribed to the greater worth of one nation over another or to a better use of the light of nature, but to the free, good, pleasure, and undeserved love of God. Therefore, those who receive so much grace beyond and in spite of all they deserve ought to acknowledge it with humble and thankful hearts. On the other hand, with the apostle, they ought to adore, but certainly not inquisitively search into the severity and justice of God's judgments on the others who do not receive this grace. Let's bow before our Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us tonight in Jesus Christ and by your Spirit as we again come before the great mysteries of your sovereign grace. We pray that you'd help us to adore your justice, to marvel and be humbled before your mercy, and to give you praise. Let your word be preached carefully and truthfully. Help us to understand and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. The congregation of Christ, we have celebrated the resurrection of Jesus who uh, rose from the dead. And you know what follows is his ascension into heaven and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel throughout the world. And so that's the story of the book of Acts. And in Acts 16, Paul's on his second missionary journey, as we noted. And what's striking about Paul's second missionary journey is that on this missionary journey, the gospel goes to Europe, to Europe. The seed of the gospel is planted for the first time in European soil. As Paul sails from the western edge of what today is known as Turkey, across the Aegean Sea to what today is known as Greece, the gospel comes to Europe. Now, of course, in Paul's day, they may not have seen this as as we see it as a great divide between two continents. Uh, Maybe they just saw it as sailing from one province to another province, from, from the shore of one part of the Roman Empire to the shore of another part of the Roman Empire, But nonetheless, as one writer says it, that invasion of Europe was not in the mind of Paul, but it was evidently in the mind of the Spirit. And John Stott writes, With the benefit of hindsight, knowing that Europe became the first Christian continent and was until fairly recently the main base for missionary outreach to the rest of the world, we can see what an epoch-making development this was. Because from Europe now, the gospel will go to all the continents of the world. And so this is a great moment as we watch the gospel progress. 
And we're reminded as we, as we read this text and the things we confess tonight that the spread of the gospel is not haphazard. It's not random. It's not meaningless. God is working according to a plan. Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Savior, is directing his gospel to where he would have it go. And we know that as the gospel comes to lands, then, then God works through, through families and generations. And so when the gospel gets planted somewhere, God works through those families and generations come to believe and the church grows up. And we're reminded that in all of this, Christ is in full control. He who conquered Europe, beginning with Paul's missionary journey there, is still sovereign, ruling the gospel and where it goes tonight. And it goes to one place and, and not another place. And, and now it seems in Europe many have turned from the gospel. In other places in the world, the gospel is flourishing. But what are we to say about all of this? Why? Why to one place and not another place? Why great success here and not there? Why many preachers here and none over there? How should we explain this? Are, are some people more worthy of the gospel? Are some people more deserving of that grace? Are some people more naturally prepared to receive it? They were ready and others were not ready for the gospel. Well, tonight we're considering God's sovereign freedom and revealing the gospel when and where and to whom he pleases. We want to look at three things tonight. First of all, the sovereign placement of the gospel, the sovereign placement. And then secondly, the hidden purpose, the hidden purpose of God. And then finally, the appropriate posture. What is to be our posture, our response to these teachings of the Bible? Well, Paul was sent off on a missionary journey by the church in Antioch. And Paul and Silas have traveled through the region of Syria and then through Cilicia, modern-day Turkey. It's at, well, you know where that is, above the Mediterranean Sea. And Paul has gone about strengthening the churches, the churches that he established on his first missionary journey. And he comes all the way to Lystra and Derby, and we read in, in Acts 16, verse 1, that he, he uh, behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. And Timothy is the son of a Jewish woman, but his father's Greek. And, and Paul wants to take Timothy with him on, on the missionary journey. And so Paul decides to have Timothy circumcised, even though Paul has insisted that we may not call Gentiles to be circumcised. There's nothing saving in that. But here he wants Timothy circumcised, not for theological reasons, but for mission strategy, so that the synagogues won't immediately be offended at Timothy. But they'll know his Jewish identity and he can minister among them. But as we, we hear about Jew and Greek and so forth, we're reminded that, that there has been a difference in the world, hasn't there? The Jewish people are, up until this point in history, the only ones who have the law of God, right? We sang that in Psalm 147. God's given his statutes to, to Jacob, but to no one else. And so our confession notes in the, the canons tonight that God in the Old Testament limited his revelation to one people. And we know that. At the beginning of time, God gave his revelation to every person. That is, the two people there were, Adam and Eve. They both got the gospel. But after that, we know that God begins to, to work more narrowly, doesn't he? he? He works through Noah. And then, you know, after the flood and the Tower of Babel and the spread of the people and idolatry everywhere, God chooses one man out of an idolatrous land. He calls Abram. He's going to work through Abram's line. And, and then, you know, God brings people out of uh, Israel, out of, out of Egypt, into Mount Sinai. And he gives them a load of revelation. And God 
is giving to Israel his law and the revelation of his gospel. And God has chosen to work through this one nation in a unique way. And in the Old Testament, there was not a foreign missionary movement, right? There were very few people sent out. You might think of Jonah who goes to Nineveh, but, but by and large, the prophets, they preach to Israel. Now, God always had his eye on the nations, right? He promised Abraham that through you, in you, in your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was always the goal. And Israel was supposed to be a bright, shining light and covenant fellowship with God that would attract the world. And the Gentiles were always free in the Old Testament to come in, right? As, as Rahab did from Jericho, as Ruth did from Moab. But the emphasis was upon God's design to work with one little nation. God made a sovereign choice to give his word to Jacob. And that was the great concern of God. Now in the New Testament, the foreign missionary movement begins and the church goes out of Jerusalem to the nations of the world. God sends out his apostles to be witnesses. The risen Jesus commissions his disciples to go out. And yet, it's interesting that in the New Testament too, though God doesn't discriminate among nations, God does sovereignly determine when and where to whom his gospel is going to go. The gospel doesn't go everywhere equally. God is still making a choice. Paul hopes to bring the gospel to Rome, but although man proposes, God disposes. And, and in Acts 16, you have a very clear illustration of, of this. Paul's blocked in two different directions from going where he thinks he ought to go, and he's led instead to cross the Aegean and to go to Europe. Paul at first tries to, as he's heading west through modern-day Turkey, he, he tries going towards the Aegean Sea into Asia, maybe hoping to come to Ephesus, a, a world-class, world-famous city. But according to Acts 16, verse 6, the Holy Spirit forbade him to preach the word in Asia. We're not told how the Holy Spirit did it. Was it a matter of, of, of sickness? Was it some ban against Christians or preaching? Was it some impression the Holy Spirit gave them or some word of prophecy? We don't know. So they were deflected northward, and eventually they reached the region of Mysia. And when they arrived there, they tried to go northeast into Bithynia, up to the northern part of modern-day Turkey. And now the Spirit opposes them again. Why does the Spirit prohibit them from preaching the gospel in these places? Well, it wasn't because God had intended to bypass these places forever, interestingly enough, on the way back from this missionary journey, Paul will come to Ephesus in Asia. And then on the next missionary journey, he'll spend a couple years there. And as far as Bithynia in the north, Peter would eventually write, 1 Peter 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Christians in Bithynia. In fact, Kistemacher in his commentary says, in time, Bithynia became a stronghold of the Christian church and the site of significant church council meetings, for example, the First Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. and the Fourth General Council of Chalcedon in 451. Nicaea was a Bithynian city. But on this point, at this point in time, the Spirit says, no, you won't go there. 
I blocked that off. God has a plan that overrides Paul's plan. So Paul keeps moving westerly and finally comes to Troas. He comes to the end of the continent. He's at the coast. And then he gets that vision. The man of Macedonia is saying, come over. Come across the sea and help us. And so Paul gets the news from God. That's where you're going. What are we to make of all this? Well, God throughout all of history has been revealing the secret of his will, his holy gospel, and and nobody's saved without it. You can't be saved without the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't be saved by looking at the clouds. You can't be saved by, by within your heart deciding there must be a God of grace, there must be a Savior. You can only be saved by the revelation of the mystery of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God doesn't just decide who will be saved by way of election. He decides who's going to hear the gospel. There's an interesting point here to be made, I think, that for those who really struggle with the doctrine of election, maybe you have some friends who say, I just can't believe that God would choose among people who would be saved. I believe God does the same thing for everyone. Everyone has the same opportunity. Everyone has the same basic level of the Spirit so they can believe or however they want to say it. It's all up to man. Reason some believe and some don't. It's all about free will. Well, we can say to them, if that's true, what about all the people who died in the Old Testament without ever hearing the gospel? What about the fact that in the New Testament, as the gospel goes forward, it doesn't go to all equally. God is still choosing. When and where and to whom the gospel will go. Already at the beginning of the canons of Dord, in the first head of doctrine, the very third article of the canon says, In order that people may be brought to faith, God mercifully sends proclaimers of this very joyful message to the people he wishes and at the time he wishes. God restricts his grace in various ways, both by predestination, but also by his sovereign providence in terms of where the gospel goes. The only alternative to believing this would be to believe that the gospel hasn't gone everywhere because we failed. I think I told you that in the high school I attended here in Salem, at least one chapel speaker brought us that message inviting us to envision the scene on Judgment Day when people are being condemned and being ushered off to hell, that they would turn back and look at us and say, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? As if the, the whole of their eternal destruction hung upon us high school students who hadn't told them about Jesus. Well, Acts 16 should correct that idea. Paul wanted to tell the Bithynians about Jesus, and the Spirit said No. Now, we shouldn't miss the point. I'm sure that chapel speaker was well-intentioned, right? That we should have a zeal for evangelism, and we should have a heart for the lost, and, and we should have a burden that who am I to remain silent while people are dying? Remember William Carey? William Carey, the, the famous missionary to, to India in the 1700s, 1800s, and He's known as the father of modern missions because by his example and by his pleas for missionaries, hundreds followed in his footsteps. But the story is famously told of of William Carey, who would be the missionary to India, 
of him at a minister's gathering where he's, he's urging for missions and an older minister saying to him, sit down, young man, man, and be quiet. If God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without you. Well, that poor older fellow who goes down in history, thankfully nameless, I guess, as far as I know, you know, he had it wrong, didn't he? Carey's zeal for missions was a good thing, not because he believed God couldn't save the heathen without him, but because he believed God uses means to save. And so we ought to be eager with those means. We ought to be eager with those means. But as we're eager with means, we recognize God is sovereign. He opens doors. He closes doors. He raises up preachers. He calls preachers out of this life. He does as he pleases. And you see, the alternative to believing that God is sovereign is not just to believe that, that the reason the gospel hasn't gone everywhere, all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, is because Israel failed and we failed. The alternative is even worse than that. The alternative is to believe that the sovereign God, of his own initiative, sent his son into the world to save sinners, to die on the cross. That God did that when nobody wanted Jesus. He sent him to die for his enemies. And after doing that, then God said, my son has atoned for sin. And now the making known of that atonement, I'm going to leave to men, to sinful men and their laziness and their selfishness and see if they'll let anybody know. Well, it doesn't make any sense, does it? The sovereign God who sent his son is going to see to it that the gospel gets published and people know about the saving death of his son. God is powerful and God is wonderful. And so in the book of Acts here and in chapter 16, the Spirit says no to the southwest. The Spirit says no to Bithynia in the north. The Spirit leads them to the coast and the Spirit calls them across the Aegean Sea over to Greece. And what happens? They come to Philippi and God opens Lydia's heart. God opens the jailer's heart. God leads them on to Thessalonica, which becomes a great joy of the Apostle Paul, that congregation. He leads them on to the Bereans, who are famous for having studied the Scriptures to see if what Paul preached was the truth. The Spirit leads Paul to Athens, that famous Mars Hill debate. The Spirit leads them to Corinth. God is sovereignly saving. And later on in history... One writer notes a few missionaries who were blocked in one direction but sent by God to another. He writes, Livingston tried to go to China, but God sent him to Africa instead. Before him, Carey planned to go to to Polynesia in the South Seas, but God guided him to India. Judson, Abiram Judson, went to India first, but was driven on to Burma. It's interesting, isn't it? The book of Acts is, is, a, is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. So when you read the narrative, you shouldn't think everything we read here we should do. Nevertheless, when we see how God works blocking and leading like this, we might be encouraged as well, right? To know that as God shuts doors to us, he's, he leads us to where he wants us. And if as a congregation we, we discover that things we've tried or places we've gone seem to be shut off, we ought not to give up. But we ought to plead to the sovereign Lord of missions and evangelism to direct us, and we ought to be eager. William Carey, who, who was rebuffed by that older minister that God can save the heathen without you, was not put off by that kind of advice, but his motto was expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. 
But all of that, recognizing that God is sovereign. As we look at our lives, we can rest assured that God puts us in jobs. He leads us to buy a house or to go here or there, puts us in neighborhoods and associations and so forth according to his sovereign will. And so we should pray for that and we should seek to capitalize on those relationships. But as we see God sovereignly directing his gospel, and the question tonight, as I said, is why? And so let's consider God's hidden purpose here. Why has the glorious privilege of the gospel come to some and not others? Why to us and not some other? Let's look at God's hidden purpose. The canon tend at some wrong answers to those questions. The wrong answers would be, well, because we're better people. We're more worthy people. We deserve it. The wrong answer would be, well, we, we tried harder with general revelation, and we were working our way up, and we realized there was a God, and we were pleading for God to give us the good news. It's a wrong answer. We're more valuable to God. We mean more to God than someone else on the other side of the globe. It's a wrong answer. What do we say when we compare Europe to the other continents where Islam or Buddhism reign? What do we say? That there was something more worthy about the Dutch, more worthy about the French, more worthy about the Germans, and God said, you know, these people, they... They deserve the gospel. That's where I'm going to send the apostle. That's where I'm going to cause the gospel to take deep roots. The British people are better people than the Chinese people. I'm sending the gospel to Britain. No. No. We need to think about this, don't we? The canons of Dort, both in this article and in a previous one, Remember, the canons, each head of doctrine has a positive section, then a rejection of errors. If you go back to the first head of doctrine, the rejection of error section on page 266, it, it rejects what's in um, shaded print. And we reject those who teach that the cause for sending the gospel to one people rather than to another is not merely and solely God's good pleasure, but rather that one people is better and worthier than others to whom the gospel is not communicated. We need to dwell on that, I think, as Americans. We, as Americans, have a bit of a history of pride and thinking ourselves at times a better people than the other nations of the world because of our prosperity or our freedom. We have to distinguish, don't we, between a superior body of ideas, right? We can say that, that a nation has superior or more noble ideas about about what's right, about what's true, about how people should live and be governed. But that's different than saying we're a superior people, right? We talk about the greatness of America. What are we talking about? That we're a greater people? We can talk about a, a great blessing of God, we talk about a heritage, talk about how the gospel ran in this country and, and many believed and it affected how we were governed and the freedoms we have. Talk about God's grace to us, the greatness of that. But if by greatness of America we mean we are really something, we are better than the rest, then we are completely mixed up. 
We did not deserve the gospel any more than anyone else in the world. God told Israel why he chose them. Remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 7? Why did I choose you? You're a holy people to the Lord. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. Israel, the Lord loves you because the Lord loves you. And it's not because you're a great people. In fact, the Spirit has recorded the history of Israel so we could be assured they were not a great people. Complainers and murmurers and prone to sin and rebellion, not a great people. In fact, it's interesting in the rejection of errors that I read earlier from, from the first head of doctrine, page 266, it, you know, it says that, that the gospel didn't go to one people because they're better or more worthy. And then one of the verses that's quoted after that is Matthew eleven twenty one. Christ said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if those mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus seems to say that those wicked cities would have been more receptive than the cities of Israel. So why did God choose? Well, the answer of Scripture is because of God's love and his good pleasure. Jesus in Matthew eleven, twenty-five and 26 says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. That's what follows that the word I just read from Matthew eleven twenty one about Bethsaida and Chorazin. Jesus says, I, I praise you, Father. You've hidden these things from the wise. You revealed them to babes because that was your good pleasure. That's the only reason. God's good pleasure. Reason is not found in us. The reason is found in God. We are all by nature dead in sin, rebellious, unfit for God, unwilling to seek God. All of us, every people, every nation, doesn't matter what your skin color is, but the answer is found in God, God himself. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the gospel. No human merit. And that extends not just to the cross, but it extends to the proclamation of the cross. That the proclamation of the cross comes to those who are dead in sin, to those who are enemies, to those who are powerless. Second Corinthians 4 verse 5, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Isn't it great in Acts 16 to see God sovereignly sends Lydia, the apostle Paul, and God sovereignly opens her heart to receive the message. She needed both gifts. She needed the publishing of the gospel. She needed the power of the Spirit. And only with both those gifts does she come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
We may not try to lessen the mystery before us by coming up with ideas about why some people get the gospel and others don't. We may not try to lessen the mystery by saying some are more worthy, some are better, some are more deserving. Or by saying some made a better use of the general revelation they had. No. As John Calvin aptly puts it in his commentary on Acts 16, this whole thing with God blocking two different routes for the Apostle Paul and driving him over to Philippi. Calvin writes, God does not lack good reason for offering his gospel to some and passing by others, but that reason lies hidden. God does not lack good reason for offering his gospel to some and passing by others, but that reason lies hidden, and it lies hidden in himself. And so finally tonight, then what should be our response? What's the appropriate posture to all of this truth? Well, it's one of praise. It's one of worship. It's one of humility. Canons say at the end of Article 7 or the second half, therefore those who receive so much grace beyond and in spite of all they deserve ought to acknowledge it with humble and thankful hearts. Do you do that tonight? As you contemplate your heritage in a land where the gospel has been richly preached? Do you humbly give thanks when you contemplate the family God put you in if it was a Christian home? Do you humbly give thanks as you think even tonight, this Lord's Day, that we get to read and hear the gospel preached to us? Are these things we just take for granted and think everybody has them? Well, look around the world. They don't. Are these things we think we deserve? Are we humbled? God and his love and good pleasure has done this? Have we, have we pondered the fact that we could have been born in a Muslim land and devoted our whole life to such a religion and even killed ourselves in suicide bombing? No hope, knowing nothing of Jesus Christ. Could have been born in a secular home in this country and, and never once been to church. You know, where we're at that point, right? I just talked to a neighbor my same age and he asked him if he knew what the gospel was and he didn't. By God's grace, we've been saved. We're to fall down and say, why me, Lord? What wondrous grace is this? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Who am I? We have a true humility before God in which we thank him rather than murmur against him. And a true humility that's in reflecting how we deal with other people. Israel was proud and presumptuous oftentimes, and we can be that way too, right? We sometimes drive past neighbors out doing yard work on the Lord's Day or something and shake our heads at them. But is that just an attitude of superiority? Think we're better, more deserving people? What do you have that you do not receive, the Lord asks you. We deal with people contemptuously, thinking they'll never, they would never understand the gospel. They would never make a good Christian person. Who are we to say that? What were we before God took hold of us? 
At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. These doctrines that we're studying are to or to instill in us a profound humility. God, I deserved hell. I deserved to never hear the name Jesus in my life. Here you've lavished upon me your gospel. What do we do as we consider those who haven't heard the gospel and die without hearing the gospel? Well, of course, we are to be moved with love and prayer. We're to plead. For the Lord to send harvesters into his field, we are to support that with our monies. We, we are to have an eager interest out of love for our neighbor. But as we look upon the Old Testament, nations dying without the gospel, and as we look upon New Testament days where many die without the gospel, we are to worship the justice of God. With the apostle We are to adore, but not curiously pry into the severity and justice of God's judgments. And we are to say with Calvin, God has reason for giving the gospel to some and passing by others. But it's not a reason known to me. He is God, and I am not. He's the sovereign Lord, and I am not. And I bow at his feet, and I know he's a just judge, and he's a righteous judge, and he's a good God, and he always does what's right. And I will not try to pry in and figure this all out, but I will bow down in worship and let God be God. And I will give him thanks for his mercies in Jesus. As I pray that many more will come to know the Savior and glorify his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled before your word, your purposes, and your ways. Forgive us, O Lord, of our pride. Teach us, Heavenly Father, to stand in holy amazement, to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to God that it should be repaid to him? For of you, and through you, and to you are all things. To you, O God, be the glory. Forever and ever through Jesus Christ. Amen.